It's Wednesday, June the 2nd. You're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I can lay claim to that title, I'm not the only Hoover Fellow who dabbles in podcasting. In fact, if you go to the Hoover website, which is hoover.org, click on the Publications tab, then go to where it says Podcast and click on that as well. You're going to find just a whole bevy of shows waiting for you to listen to. We have podcasts on economics, law, foreign policy, the classics. We just cover the whole waterfront. And if you want to subscribe, very easy. Just uh, sign up for any and all podcasts you want. You can also sign up for our monthly Pod Blast, Pod Blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to your inbox each month. Hoover Podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. Joining me today in this podcast is my colleague, Stephen Haber. Stephen Haber is the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the AA and Jean Welch Milligan Professor in the School of Humanities and Sciences at Stanford University. In addition, he's a Professor of Political Science, Professor of History, and Professor of Economics by Courtesy, as well as a Senior Fellow of both the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research and the Center for International Development. Stephen Haber's current research focuses on three areas, the creation of regulatory barriers to entry and finance, the economic and political consequences of holdup problems created by different systems of agricultural production, and the comparative development of patent systems. He currently serves as director of, of Hoover's Working Group on Innovation and Intellectual Property. Steve, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Delighted to be here. So life takes us in very interesting directions, places we didn't think we'd go necessarily. I don't know, growing up, Steve, if you thought you would end up one day at a very prestigious university as a very highly celebrated and honored professor. And I could have spent the next five minutes listing every award you've won at Stanford, but you pretty much won about every damn thing there is to win for being a professor. But here's the question, Steve, did you ever think that life would be taking you to the great state of Alabama? Tell us tell us exactly what you've been doing in Alabama lately. Well, Bill, as you pointed out, uh, uh, I've been very poor, and I imagine most people have been very poor at it, at predicting the future. Uh, that is my own future. Uh, and so if, let's say, 35 years ago at the beginning of my career, if somebody I'd be told me I'd be doing any of the things I'm currently doing, uh, I would have said that was highly unlikely. Um, so uh, it's one of the great things about uh, life in general and an academic life in particular um, that you uh, get to have experiences you didn't anticipate and you get to learn things that you didn't know that you didn't know. Um, so what takes Hoover to Alabama and me to Alabama? Um, so the state of Alabama uh, under Governor Ivey um, realized that there is a singular moment for the state uh, right now um, in that the, uh, there's A, a big transformation of the world economy taking place in terms of the spatial distribution uh, of uh, industries and firms. Uh, B, um, coastal states are shedding population, particularly um, uh, high-skilled uh, populations because of the regulatory environments that have been created in those states, the regulatory and tax environments. Uh, and see, uh, um, Alabama is, uh, has um, a series of assets that make it potentially attractive uh, for firms and high-skilled individuals to relocate. And so they uh, began an app, what they call the uh, uh, Innovation Initiative, uh, and um, invited Hoover to uh, advise them uh, on their Innovation Initiative. And since I've done some 
uh, uh, some work on innovation uh, and some work on economic development around the planet, uh, Condi asked me if I would serve as lead researcher. Uh, and so I'm delighted to say that over the last two months, I've now been back in Alabama twice, uh, had an amazing time. Uh, and if I could uh, not bury the lead here, um, for those uh, listeners who've never been to Alabama, it isn't what you think it is. Uh, this is actually a fascinating state. So uh, in fact, I'm eager to get back to the state uh, probably sometime in October. And I want to talk more about that. So Condi is, of course, the Hoover Institution's director, Condoleezza Rice, and she has a very personal stake in this because she was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, she grew up in Alabama. Her first, her up to her preteen years, I believe, her dad was the dean of students at Stillman College, which is uh, uh, just down the road from the University of Alabama. So she, she has a passion for this as well, correct? I believe that is correct, yes. Yes. So most people don't know that about her. Actually, she has Alabama roots. So what we're referring to is what is called formally, Steve, the Alabama Innovation Commission, uh, established by Governor Kay Ivey in July of 2020. Uh, it is the state's first statewide commission focused on entrepreneurship, technology, and innovation. And uh, the design of this is interesting. I'd like to get some thoughts from you on this. We uh, There are, as I can see, four components to this. There's, first of all, in terms of what Hoover is doing, first of all, um, business incentives and prosperity. Um, the owner of that is our colleague, Josh Rao. Uh, second, there is deploying broadband-based education. Um, our colleague, Mackie uh, Raymond, is on top of that one. Uh, third area of, of uh, concentration for Hoover is fostering the role of universities. Uh, Josh Rao, again, and Rick Banks are involved in that one. And then finally, uh, a guy named Steve Haper is involved in what is called the Outdoor Recreation Lab. Mm-hmm. So let's let's kind of let's break those down uh, one by one. So business incentives and prosperity. Here's what I find interesting about this, Steve. Um, Southern states faced a similar situation back in the early 1980s, as I recall, um, and you started seeing uh, the migration of automobile manufacturers into the South. The labor situation. Tennessee got Saturn. Um, South Carolina has a BMW plant in Spartanburg, and Alabama um, is knee-deep in automobile manufacturing, something people don't realize. Mercedes-Benz set up shop there, I think, about 25 years ago. Toyota and Mazda are putting billions of dollars in the economy. I looked up some stats. One thing which is great about doing podcasts, Steve, is you get to learn a lot in a short period of time. And I think about one in every six uh, Alabama export dollars these days is in the manufacture of automobiles. So They've done the manufacturing thing, it looks like, starting as of 40 years ago. So is it correct to say that Governor Ivey and other smart governors are kind of asking the question of what next for our economy? In other words, something a little more 21st century than just manufacturing. I think that um, to take a, a, a step back, um, the point I would make is that innovation uh, isn't factories. Innovation is people. Um, it is the ability to, of uh, an entrepreneur to see a demand curve for a product that doesn't exist yet uh, or an improved version uh, of a product that no one's yet imagined and then bring together a team of people with diverse skill sets in marketing, finance, engineering, uh, invention, uh, chemistry um, to build the product uh, finance the product, and market the product. Uh, a quintessential example of this is a smartphone. Uh, Apple saw uh, the, uh, a demand curve for something that didn't exist yet, mm -hmm. uh, 
and created a product that's probably the most successful consumer product in the history of the planet. Um, and did it um, by bringing together people with diverse skills. And so what I think Governor Ivey and um, other leaders in Alabama are, are thinking about, well, I don't want to say what they're thinking about, but my own thinking on this is, and I think it's consistent with theirs, is that the key to moving beyond manufacturing jobs uh, is to be at the sort of closer to the frontier of um, new industries. And that means bringing uh, people with uh, very well-developed and complementary skill sets into the state. In order to do that, however, Alabama has to, has to have the right infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That is, there's gotta be broadband infrastructure. There's gotta be a high, uh, a well-trained workforce that is uh, K through 12 education. There's gotta be uh, the legal infrastructure, uh, particularly for university professors to turn their, um, uh, their scientific or engineering research into commercializable products. Uh, and there's gotta be a, what I would call an outdoor education, an outdoor recreation infrastructure to attract and hold population in the state. Right. So the, uh, the general thrust of, uh, I think the Hoover report to the AIC is going to be for the state to focus on building the infrastructure that'll pull the people in and hold the people who are graduating from its universities um, so that um, the market economy uh, can generate products that don't yet exist or that people have not imagined. So moving beyond um, uh, moving beyond automobile manufacturing, however important that is. Right. Uh, and that Hoover report's due in October, I believe. Uh, so you've been to Alabama twice now, Steve. What has surprised you about uh, what, your short time and what you've learned so far? What has surprised you? So I would say that there are um, several assets of the state that uh, people from outside the state uh, tend not to recognize. And that, was, that included me before I started traveling there. Versus one asset the state has, and it's not trivial, is how nice Alabamians are. Um, I'm a native New Yorker. We are not known for our hospitality. No, no. At heart, we are nice, uh, if a little gruff. Uh, but Alabamians uh, put us to shame when it comes to making people feel welcome. I'll give you an example. Uh, so as part of the, uh, my research, I've been out hiking the trails of the state parks in Alabama. I got lost in DeSoto State Park uh -huh. and happened upon a, a couple, that had, uh, a retired couple, uh, and their Ford F-150 pickup truck, and uh, they could see I was lost. And so after chatting a bit with them, they said, heck, we're just going to drive you back to your car because you're so far from your car, it's going to take you two hours to walk back there. Um, you, you, you're really not where you think you are. Uh, and so they gave me a ride back to my car. So there were two things about it I thought were really remarkable. For it. The first was that it was a pickup truck and not a Tesla. And the second was that this never would have happened in California uh, um, or highly unlikely that anybody was going to give a ride to a stranger back to their car in California. Right. So there is a graciousness to the people. The second thing that is striking about the state to an outsider is how beautiful the state is. 
Uh, the physical beauty of, so I think, you know, Westerners have this prejudice about the rest of the country um, that uh, um, only the West is beautiful. Actually, uh, the, uh, the topography um, and flora and fauna of Alabama uh, are quite different than one would imagine. There's a Gulf Coast, which um, is very beautiful in a kind of beach uh, beachy way, right. but also very rugged, unlike California beaches, um, much more rugged um, with, uh, I'll point out, warm water rather than ice cold water. Uh, the second is the middle of the state or the bottom third of the state above the Gulf um, tends to be heavily forested. These are hardwood forests. Right. Um, and the third is once you get to let's say the Northern two thirds of the state, it's actually rolling hills. Right. Uh, these are limestone. So this is a region of limestone um, bluffs and cliffs, what's called karst topography. So for someone who is a uh, rock climber, for example, this is paradise. Or for someone who's a road biker like myself, uh, this is paradise because nothing's better than rolling hills if you're uh, a cyclist. So that was also a big surprise is the, the sort of the beauty and an asset for the state is the beauty uh, uh, of the state. I think the third thing that I think came to me as a surprise um, is the vision that Alabamians have for the future of their state. Um, they are uh, forward looking and they're thinking about how to thread a very difficult needle. They see an opportunity for the state to move to the frontier of um, the innovation economy, but they're also mindful that they have to do so in a way that doesn't create what shall we call it, the Los Angeles problem, which is the state that the city or the region outgrows its infrastructure. So, um, but, and they're being very thoughtful about that. Um, so these are all huge surprises for me. Um, uh, you know, as I say, coming as someone who grew up in New York and then has lived in the West for now 35 years. Uh, be honest, it's a California issue here. We're we're in California, and I think when you're in California, maybe you tend to look down upon other states, if you will, in terms of we're richer, we're smarter, we're more developed, so on and so forth. So maybe it's kind of a good humbling thing to go to another state and see that actually there there are good people in that state as well. Uh, not just that they're good. Um, they're um, I want to find the right words here. Um, they're less smug. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, that's well put. So in terms of what Alabama wants to do, Steve, do they want to, so there's a Silicon Valley, there is a research triangle in North Carolina, there's Route 128 in Massachusetts, do they want to have another hub like that? I, I think they already have something like that going on between Birmingham and Huntsville, if I think there's a lot of biotech going on there. So they've, they've already kind of laid the groundwork, it sounds like, for that. There is some groundwork for that, particularly in biotech. There's also in defense-related industries, mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of innovation. I think that they are, or my own view of this is that there's not a lot of space for many Silicon Valleys. The question is not, do you want to copy and create another Silicon Valley? Mm -hmm. The question is, how do you build an infrastructure such that the next technological revolution, whatever it's in, mm -hmm. um, 
is takes place in Alabama rather rather than uh, in rather than somewhere else. Right. Uh, if you if you went back and we need to think in the long haul here, if you went back 60 years, Silicon Valley, what we now call Silicon Valley, was a bunch of orchards. <clears throat> if you went back to the 19th century, the, the late 19th century, the richest city in the United States was Cleveland. It was the uh, center for um, electrical machinery manufacturing, and it had a structure, an economic structure, quite similar to Silicon Valley, and that's there were lots of small firms that cooperated and competed with each other, and there was tremendous churn of employees across firm. Um, and so it would not have been, one could not have imagined 60 years ago what Silicon Valley today would be, nor would one have imagined what specific industries and firms would be leading. And I think that that, that, that general rule or that general insight applies to Alabama. I don't think it's a good idea for states to try to pick winners in terms of this is the industry and we're gonna focus on it. Rather, the, the focus should be on building the right infrastructure so that mar market actors, that is individuals and firms, do what they do best. We don't know what the next, we have inklings of what the next great technological revolution will be, but we don't know its full extent and we don't know its particulars. And we need to be humble about that so that we don't try to recreate 19th century Cleveland or 20th century Silicon Valley when the world's moved on from that. Right, Stephen, reading about uh, tech innovation and economic development, it keeps tumbling across this phrase, innovative ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, as we talk about the state of Alabama and innovative ecosystem, what exactly has to be built? So, in fact, the word ecosystem is a, is a, is a really apt uh, phrase, because if you look in sort of the, in the biological world, the okay. ecosystem is the physical environment and all of the plants and animals in it that then interact um, and generate feedback loops um, such that what you get is a system that evolves in time in which it's very hard to say what caused what. For an innovative ecosystem of the 21st century, since innovation is human beings, it's supposed to A, benefit human beings, and B, it is human beings interacting with each other. Um, the ecosystem has to be attractive to high-skilled people. Right. That means that there's several necessary inputs to get high-skilled people to come to a place and stay in a place. One of them is, um, you know, I'm a, a man of a certain age, uh, born in the 1950s. And so for my generation of guys, you didn't worry about what you were going to do outside of work. You were happy to have a job. Um, I look at people my daughter's generation, and what they want to know is, what are they going to do on the weekends and after work? Can I go kayaking? Can I go canoeing? Can I go mountain biking? Can I go rock climbing? Can I whitewater raft? Um, can I hike? Can I camp? Uh, can I surf? These are now to attract high-skilled people. Um, there's a, a, you know Younger people are particularly attuned to the outdoor environment and the kind of recreation opportunities it will afford. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a necessary part 
uh, of a successful ecosystem. And if you look, for example, at the tremendous success that um, is uh, of Salt Lake City, Utah, you can see an example of it where the draw is, is of course, the mountains. Um, and it's been, um, it's allowed Salt Lake City to take a leap as, as a tech hub. Whereas if you went back 30 years, no one thought of Salt Lake City that way. Um, so that's one piece. Another piece is, uh, another necessary piece of the ecosystem is high quality schools. Right. Um, because people don't want to move to a place where their children are going, not going to be well-educated. It's also the case that you need high quality schools because innovation is not a, an event, it's a process. Right. You need to continually uh, uh, push out of the schools individuals with, with well-developed skills, um, that is well-developed cognitive, uh, cognitive skills uh, who are going to lead, you know, continual rounds of innovation. Um, so that's another part of a, of a, of a, of a 21st century uh, successful ecosystem. So the, K, the K-12 system has to step up its STEM game. Uh, the K, well, I don't know if it's, it's a STEM game has to be stepped up. Um, I think a lot of the skills are beyond STEM. Um, one of the points I, I, would, I would make is, it's, is that since, e, since innovation is the outcome of people with diverse skill sets working together, mm-hmm. it means you have to be able, have people on the team who know how to get people to work together. Right. These kind of softer skills are actually really valuable. Uh, people skills, in addition to uh, science, technology, math, uh, and engineering, um, people with well-developed people skills, and I would also say people with well-developed de- um, um, artistic design skills, because part of marketing a, pro- a, a new product or designing a product is artistic. Right. And part of ima- having an imagination to envision a product that doesn't exist yet and what it would do and why people would want it, that's not something that, that's not necessarily STEM-related. That's a, that's a kind of creativity that's right. difficult to teach, but when you see it, you know how to, a good teacher knows how to foster it. Um, so I think that there's a diverse set of uh, educational, uh, uh, educational inputs uh, from critical thinking to art, to STEM, um, to understanding human psychology that are all important for both K-12 and the university systems to focus on. And let's talk about the university systems, Steve, in terms of how the Alabama university systems are gonna to have to adapt if they want to achieve this. I, I think in two ways, number one, in terms of what is being offered programmatically in Alabama colleges and universities. But then secondly, um, a question, Steve, if there's an issue of what in the Midwest at least is called the brain drain. Uh, you talk to somebody who went to college in Iowa and Nebraska, and what they will say is, our class left. We wanted to find opportunity elsewhere. You know, I think, for example, there's a fellow named Tim Cook who works not too far away from us. He went to Auburn, for example. Tim Cook would probably be a pretty good guy to keep inside Alabama, we might agree. So uh, discuss the challenges facing the universities in that state. Well, so I think holding people and high-skilled people in a state uh, in part is uh, that there has, so this is an example of a feedback loop. There's right. going to be uh, jobs and careers for, for college graduates that they want to go to. And one of the challenges that has been facing Alabama is that they actually have, so Auburn uh, is a great university. University of Alabama, Birmingham, 
it's a great university. Um, other, there's other great universities in the state. University of Alabama, um, which listeners may not know, is separate from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Great university. Right. Um, all this is to say, but, but it is to say that when students graduate, they've got to have something to go to. And the brain drain has been pulling uh, graduates both from the South and the Midwest to the coasts now for say 40 years. There's nothing inevitable about that. Um, so it's not that the universities need to change their game. It's that there's gotta be a fuller uh, ecosystem uh, creating opportunities to hold Alabama's best and brightest in the state. One thing universities could do, and one thing I've discussed with my counterparts in Alabama, would be to change the rules regarding startup companies owned by professors. Um, so at Stanford, um, we think that it's completely natural and normal that uh, a successful professor will start uh, a biotech startup, will start a, um, uh, uh, a computer-oriented startup. Um, that is actually fairly unusual uh, by the standards of most universities, uh, Alabama's included, and it's because most, particularly state systems, regard university professors as public employees. And so they're right. conflicts of interest. And so they create all these firewalls against conflicts of interest, which of course are reasonable, but it means that it's very hard to get uh, an entrepreneurial professor to stay in your system. Uh, my favorite example of such entrepreneurial types in a university is uh, Erwin Jacobs who left MIT to go to UC San Diego when it was first created. Um, and within a few years or within two years of arriving at newly created UCSD, Jacobs, who was an electrical engineering professor, founded his first company. Mm -hmm. uh, and within about a dozen years, he had founded Qualcomm, which, of course, now powers every smartphone on the planet. Right. It is a $25 billion a year company with 30,000 employees. But that was only going to happen if there were the right rules in place, the legal infrastructure that would allow somebody like Jacobs to move back and forth between the classroom and, and his own startups. So I think that that is a challenge for um, uh, policymakers in Alabama to think about how to get the right balance between conflicts of interest and encouraging innovative uh, activity by uh, faculty. And Steve, have, uh, does the state have a good pipeline set up in that? By, and what I mean by that is there's a pipeline at Stanford. Um, you go to Stanford, you get an undergraduate degree in engineering, you go over to the uh, business school, get your MBA, and away you go. You just kind of immediately into the jet stream of, of uh, Silicon Valley. Um, has Alabama talked about creating any kind of similar structure like that, where maybe it would step up engineering, but then also uh, you know, revisit the idea of an MBA in terms of, in other words, create somebody who has that background and that savvy to, to compete in that marketplace? I think that the key here is not to sort of try to engineer things from the top down, uh -huh. um, but rather to create an environment in which individuals are free to pursue their self-interest right. uh, and will do so. 
Um, So the particular model of Silicon Valley of get an engineering degree, uh, work for a while, get an MBA, uh, start your own company, it fails, start another one, it fails, start a third one. Oh, that one actually succeeds. That's peculiar to Silicon Valley. Um, Nobody engineered it. Nobody thought out, oh, here's what we need to do. It emerged. And it emerged in Silicon Valley because if you went back to its origins in the late 1950s, you had an okay university, Stanford. It was just an okay university in the 1950s. Uh, We had a president of Stanford at the time who was very keen on building the engineering school and the science capacities of the university. Um, But we were not yet a great university. Um, There were low taxes in California, a good educational system, lots of outdoor uh, recreation uh, opportunities. And then there was an accident. And the accident was that William Shockley, who was at Bell Labs, got into a fight with Bell Labs over a patent around the transistor. And in anger, he left Bell Labs. Shockley, I should be clear, won the Nobel Prize um, uh, for his contributions to the development of the transistor. And so Shockley got angry and decided to create his own firm, Shockley Electronics. And he located it in Silicon Valley because this is where his mother lived and she was sick. Um, so he, he located the firm in Mountain View because that's where his mom was. And then Shockley attracted um, a bunch of other very highly skilled people to join him, uh, including um, uh, Gordon Moore, who later on went on to found Intel. Right. Um, and so the people who joined Shockley, uh, and it was, again, it's an accident that Shockley's mom lived here. Uh, but they found this a hospitable place to work. And they found it was possible to have a relation, that there was a pipeline from the local university of, of engineers. Um, although it, I'll be clear here, at the time, Stanford's not the dominant engineering school in the United States. Um, and uh, in fact, if I remember correct, the history of this correctly, I don't believe any of the original, the original sort of core team that was in Shockley came out of Stanford's engineering school. Uh, if memory serves, Gordon Moore came out of Berkeley. So the, they, that group only lasts 18 months with Shockley because they find him very difficult to work with. And they go off, they found another firm called Fairchild, which right. no longer exists. But Fairchild then begets about 60 other firms. They thing keep spinning off new companies. So what starts as there's a good environment in, 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 in all the ways we've talked about, and there is um, uh, this accident of Shockley and his fight with uh, Bell Labs and locating here that, that sets in motion a process in which what emerges is this notion of the scholar entrepreneur um, science. So I would call it the scientist entrepreneur scholar. Mm-hmm. That's a peculiarly Silicon Valley property. The question for other states is not to is not how to recreate Silicon Valley because how many Silicon Valleys do you need? It's it's to create an environment in which creative people are going to pursue their self-interest. Yeah, that, that is something else, Steve. I, I think I've just shown off my California arrogance by saying, why not create another Silicon Valley? Uh, mm-hmm. And I think the arrogant California side is you want to create a lot of wealth. 
but we could look at Alabama and we could say, okay, we could create a big pocket of wealth between Birmingham and Huntsville and people will make a killing in biotech and life will be great. But you know, you don't have kind of a happy, equal, just society. So it sounds like what, what Hoover is doing here with Alabama, it's the idea of just building a good, fair society, if you will. In other words, not just a pursuit of wealth, but happiness and just also spread evenly across the society. So when we talk about education reform, when we talk about broadband, we talk about better universities, it's not just so we can admit one class of millionaires. It's thing, so you can have, yeah, people can pursue wealth, but also have a vibrant middle class and also ideally, hopefully lift people up from poverty into a middle class. Well, I think that that is exactly right. And one of the um, one of the things we're focused, this is one of the reasons why I have this particular focus on outdoor recreation, because one of the things it generates is lots of jobs uh, in the countryside. Mm -hmm. Something I know a bit about firsthand. So my daughter and son-in-law were both commercial whitewater guides um, for about six years after college. Um, they lived in a town called Coloma, which is in the foothills of the Sierras. Right. Coloma, California, which is maybe 45 miles east of Sacramento. Gold Rush country, isn't it? Excuse me? It's yes. Country? Yeah. Has a per capita income, or excuse me, has a family, a, a, a household income of about $82,000 a year. Right. There's no tech companies in Coloma, California. What's generated um, the wealth is, the, is all of the firms that that provide services for whitewater rafting, kayaking, canoeing, and the like. All the outfitters. Um, that is a, a positive externality, right, of uh, having a, an ecosystem, an innovation ecosystem that, that is both, that also takes into account outdoor recreation. And so one of the opportunities for Alabama is to create a more um, even distribution of income um, than they would otherwise, because the um, by focusing on the outdoors, you generate a lot of opportunity for individuals and small firms to grow up to service the outdoor innovation, the outdoor recreation market. I I'll give you an example of this in Alabama. So I was on this marvelous farm called the Joe Farm. Um, which is outside of Greensboro, uh, Alabama. And uh, there's a, um, the gentleman who now runs the farm joint with his father, uh, Christopher Joe, um, is, has turned his farm into a bird watching, camping, outdoor recreation um, uh, business. I think it's called something like uh, connecting with birds in nature. Right. And it's a, it's a, so it's still an active farm. He still, well, I think about 50 head of cattle. Um, but um, the, uh, the, the, he's seen that there's demand for outdoor recreation and he's created a business aimed at grabbing some of that, uh, some of those revenues to sustain his farm and since this, I think this family's probably owned this farm for five or six generations and to sustain the family farm. This is exactly the kind of positive feedback between an innovative economy and uh, an outdoor recreation economy that just doesn't create 
uh, a sort of bunch of smug Silicon Valley people uh, who are convinced they're, they're superior to everybody else, but actually generates the kind of more equal or inclusive growth um, that is an important part of sustaining a democratic society that we like, that people, that Americans like living in. Oh, I'll take a second here. So I've spent a lot of time, as you know, in Mexico, and that's where I, my, my original interest in development came from. Mexico is extremely unequal. And if you've been a successful individual in Mexico City, you live behind a wall. Uh, and you can't even see your house from the street. And the walls will often have barbed wire or glass embedded in the concrete, broken glass embedded in the concrete to keep people from climbing over the walls. That's not the kind of society I think most Americans want to live in. But it means that economic growth um, should get broadly, and this has been the great, you know, one of the great things about America, economic growth needs to, it, it has been broadly dispersed or broadly uh, shared in right. for, by people willing to um, take risks and work hard. Um, in order for the America that frankly, that I love to continue to exist, um, that drew my grandparents here, uh, who all ran, ran away from poverty and then worked themselves to death, uh, in order for that America to be sustained, um, having a, I don't like to use the word just because I don't know what, what it would mean, but having an America in which it's possible for everybody to share in the, in the possibilities created by a growing economy, mm -hmm. a positive thing. And, and it's one of the, the things that is possible in Alabama, um, uh, made possible by two of the features I talked about at the beginning of Alabama, the graciousness and kindness of its population and its physical beauty. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll mention here for, for listeners who may not know this, Alabama is one of the most biodiverse states in the, in the United States. Uh, it is on the pathway, it's on the flightway for tropical birds coming from Central America right. all the way to Canada. So for, this is a bird watcher's paradise. Um, particularly in the spring and fall. It's also, as I direct your own test, it's also a golfing paradise. There's a tour of golf courses you can take through Alabama, which my brother-in-law, who's a golf junkie, has done a couple of times. Yes, I'm not a golfer, so I didn't, <laughs> but you're right. Uh, it is a golfer's paradise. Yeah, um, one other thing about the outdoor recreation idea, Steve, is uh, it also reflects a changing workplace, if you think about this. Uh, what have we learned with COVID? You don't have to necessarily, well, you can't physically be in your office if you're if you're quarantined or if the office is closed, but commerce life goes on without being in the workplace. You and I are having a conversation over Zoom right now rather than doing this face-to-face -face at Hoover. Um, so I look at Alabama and think, well, you know, if they want to be creative, innovative, uh, not a bad idea to be thinking about how to develop communities and lifestyles away from work centers, if you will. But now this gets complicated, Steve, because if you're going to let people work in remote regions of the state, what do you need? Well, this gets back to 5G, for example. You need Wi-Fi so we can have these conversations on Zoom. But then you need infrastructure. You need roads to get people to and from. And with infrastructure comes the building of grocery stores and hospitals and gasoline stations, everything which kind of sustains a life force, if you will. So um, I'd be very curious to see if they're thinking outside the box like that. My sense is that they are. I mean, they, um, 
I don't think that they would have come to uh, us at Hoover and asked for our input if they weren't thinking broadly. Yeah. Uh, um, I think that- I mean, figure it this way. If you want to hire somebody young to work for you and put them in a futuristic application, if I can make part of that package being that Steve Haber can have a very cool cabin, you know, down by a river near some killer bike trails or something like that, and he can, you know, go to the office every so often, but for the most of the part, just telecommute, that's going to really kind of up the ante, I think, for going to Alabama. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there's a big transformation in the world economy underway in terms of the spatial organization of production, some of it is going to move uh, online. That is, will be remote. Not all of it will. Um, there are parts of creative work that must be done face-to-face. -face. There are, however, parts that can be done remotely. There's a, another transformation that's occurring that we're only beginning to see the front end of, and that is a dramatic fall in the cost of transportation. So 5G will permit something that firms have been dabbling with, but not completely successfully. It'll permit autonomous vehicles. So just as if you went back to the 1950s, you would not have imagined um, a world in which millions of cars are on the road every day Mm -hmm. not imagine that several million people would be in the air at any one time flying around the country. Today, we are not imagining what the transportation systems of, let's say, 50 years from now are going to look like. I would wager that the autonomous truck and the autonomous car uh, are going to generate separate highways for autonomous vehicles running at very high speeds, um, moving people vast differences, distances in very short amounts of time, allowing them to work while, the, while they are being transported by their autonomous vehicle. That means that all of a sudden it's possible to live, let's say if you're in Silicon Valley, you could actually, I could actually live on the American River and kayak every morning uh, and then come to work and teach all day, you know, the rest of the day at Stanford and then go home at night and grade papers on my way home in my autonomy. Now, I'm too old to, to right, but take advantage of this right. um, when it fully, you know, comes to be. But, you know, my younger colleagues, this is how their, their lives will be organized. And it means there'll be a redistribution, spatial redistribution of where home and work actually are. Um, we're only beginning to see the beginning of this. Uh, there are firms already who are pioneering the technologies that will make this possible. But one of the essential pieces of infrastructure will be 5G. You can't, cars will not be able to speak to one another and trucks and cars will not be able to speak to one another without very, very high speed communication uh, that 5G will afford. Very good. So what, in terms of the end goal of what Alabama is trying to do, it's Governor Ivey looking at a five-year model, a 10-year model, a two-year model. What, in terms of building this out, Steve, what's her time frame? He's not told me what her time frame is, and, and I've not been so presumptuous as to ask. Yeah. One of the points that the Hoover team has made to our Alabama counterparts, um, and which they, uh, um, I think, have grasped and embraced, 
is the idea that innovation and economic development are not events, they're processes. They unfold on the scale of decades. So these processes unfold in the scale of decades rather than months or years. Right. So while you can set something in motion in the short, you know, with, with some smart decisions about infrastructure, including legal infrastructure now, the full fruits of that will not be born for decades into the future. Um, I, I think that they understand that. Um, and it's certainly a point that we have been making uh, to them um, that um, innovation is something that um, emerges and unfolds um, is not easily, is not, it's not usually a good idea to try to engineer it all from the top down quickly. Right. Because um, markets are smarter than individual people. And that, that innovation happens when you bring smart people together and let them pursue their self-interest. Give them the infrastructure to do it and they'll create things that are great, but it's going to be a process rather than an event. So you're laying the groundwork, which is again, business incentives. It's deploying broadband. It's fostering the role of universities and it's the outdoor recreation lab. Correct. Uh, and as well as K-12. Okay. Uh, final note, Steve, this is a departure for Hoover, is it not? Um, I know we've been involved. I worked for Pete Wilson when he was governor of California. George Schultz, John Taylor, Mike Boskin, John Kogan worked on uh, what Wilson called the Council of Economic Advisors. He took the White House economic model and put it into Sacramento. And, and those great men came in and gave him a lot of good advice on tax and regulation, helped get California out of recession in the early 1990s. But historically, Hoover has not dabbled that much in state government. Uh, we've always been more of a federal and world operation. So uh, that's one thing that intrigues me about this. We are now, you know, if, you know, if the states are the laboratories of democracy, they're also the laboratories for innovation as well. I think that's absolutely right. I, I also think that, so first, yes, this is the first. Uh, I don't think it's the last. Um, in talking with uh, Condoleezza Rice about this, um, we share, a, I think, a, a, the view that a lot of the issues uh, and challenges that, are, that face America are actually going to be solved at the state and local level, right. not at the federal level. Uh, and that for Hoover, one of our frontiers uh, as a public policy research center uh, is to be more engaged at the state and local level. Uh, and so I'm uh, particularly delighted to be doing that in part because um, it's easier to work at the state and local level. You can see change happening more quickly at the state and local level, but it also affords uh, just that of pure self-interest and joy, the ability to get to know people and regions um, that I wouldn't have gotten to engage otherwise. And in this case, people have to be very nice in a state where it's very nice to hike and bike. It is, it is particularly, it is particularly nice to do that. I want to point out here though that there's lots of places in America that are like that. Mm -hmm. So about 20 years ago, I like to joke about 20 years and 25 pounds ago, I uh, rode my bike across Iowa uh -huh. with my colleague David Kennedy from the history department. Uh -huh. 
an organized ride that went from um, the Missouri River to the Mississippi River. It's about 500 miles across seven days. Wow. People from outside Iowa think that all Iowans looked like John Denver. <laughs> it was flat. Right. I can assure you after that ride, I've learned Iowa is definitely not flat. It's rolling hills. The people do not all look like John Denver, and they are, in fact, extraordinarily nice. Um, and um, it was, for me, a transformative event in sort of understanding other Americans who I'd not come in contact with before. I think there's lots of opportunities like that around the country, and that uh, one of the positive externalities for me as a researcher, getting involved more in state and local, is uh, finding all the ways in which uh, you can see the diversity of cultures and peoples um, uh, across the country and coming to understand people, uh, coming to understand, to put it sort of bluntly, not everybody's a New Yorker. So uh, for me, that was, a, a, as somebody who grew up in New York, that was a revelation when I came West. And now I've, uh, you know, uh, there's this wonderful diversity in this country. And the last part, I'll make here a point I'll make here is that one of the things I've learned both in Alabama and when I wrote across Iowa and in other things I've done in other states, I, I spent a lot of time, for example, uh, in the part of Montana, very close to the um, Canadian border, is how decent uh, and hardworking uh, and generally positive most people in this country are. And it's not something that I would learn sitting here in Silicon Valley, listening to CNN, because that's not the message that has uh, been generated by, um, to call it um, kindly clickbait media. Oh, that's well put. So I'm spending the month of July, Steve, in South Carolina, where I have family and our work situation allows me to work remotely. So I'm going to take full advantage. Are you going back to Alabama in July or August by chance? No, because rumor has it that it's really hot in Alabama in July and August. <laughs> and I think you, I think you need to go find this out for yourself. Yes. <laughs> if you want to lose those 25 pounds. This is how you start it. This is, this is going to be. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I'm actually, so the beyond buttoned, I'm actually having hand surgery in uh, three weeks. And so I am not going to be doing a whole lot of traveling until I've, I'm going to have then fairly long-term um, uh, physical therapy to get use of my hand back. So I'm going to be here in Silicon Valley for about two, three months okay. uh, between surgery and then uh, rehabilitation. So that's why I'm not getting back to uh, doing really a whole lot of travel at all until uh until this fall but uh sometime around october i'm planning on going back to alabama uh it's it's hot steve but you adjust uh my family says it's not really hot until it's about 95 degrees and you know sitting here in silicon valley uh the other day when they were complaining about a one-day heat wave where it was 82 degrees in palo alto you kind of learn to laugh things off but this gets the idea about it being a good idea to go see other parts of the country and kind of understand how other people live absolutely Absolutely. And learn, in fact, that even on a day when it can be 90 degrees. So I went for a bike ride uh, with some really great guys uh, in Alabama. We did about a 25 mile ride up over. This was outside of Birmingham over Red Mountain and then into downtown Birmingham and, and then around the city. 
that day got to be, I don't know, 95. We launched at 6.30 in the morning. We were done by 9 a.m. Um, so even though it can get really hot, you can see how you just adapt uh, to the environment and get up earlier uh, and, <laughs> and do intense physical exercise uh, uh, before, before the sun really gets intense. Yeah, but it's nature and it's fresh air. What's not to like? Exactly. Hey, Steve Haber, enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to seeing the report in October. And uh, look, uh, congratulations on all that you and Josh and Mackie and our many Hoover colleagues are doing uh, with Alabama. And credit also for our director who, you know, I've heard her talk oftentimes about uh, the need for broadband in rural areas, about education. Uh, she just doesn't talk the talk, she walks the walk. Exactly. Okay. Steve Haber, great conversation. Let's do it again in October when the report comes out. I'd love to. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us if you wouldn't mind. We do this at least once a week. Uh, also, spread the word. Again, if you don't mind, tell your friends all about us. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the podcast, and that is www.hoover.org. While you're there, I strongly encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Stephen Haber and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. You can also go to the Hoover website to learn more about the Alabama Initiative. We'll be keeping you updated on that. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.